that's kind of weird because I would expect an Australian audience to boo meringue. That's a terrible joke. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's that an one. Absolutely terrible. That was for Brett Thorson. This is Chapel Bell Curve. I'm Nathan. And I'm Justin. And today we are here to talk about the dog's absolutely dominating performance yesterday in a 27-13 win over the saltiest bitches in the world, the Tennessee <laughs> Volunteers, who are... Absolutely salty. Let, yeah, let me just say off the top, just off the top rope, let me just say that all Tennessee fans are just invited to die mad. Uh, just, I I don't think I've ever seen a more uh, cogent, no, that's not even the right word, a more applicable use of the hose mad meme than this. Uh, hose are mad, you know? And <laughs> I am so happy that it rained yesterday because what would Tennessee fans talk about if they couldn't point out that it was a rain game and there's no accounting for it? I have lived in East Tennessee briefly, and I think they are familiar with how rain works. So I wonder at that particular excuse, but I do know that psychologically it is an important thing for them. Anyway, so today we are going to be doing, as we always do in our review episodes, if this is your first time joining us, we'll be talking about this game from both a qualitative and quantitative standpoint. We, in these sort of quick recording reviews. We were actually recording this one on Sunday, which is kind of a change up into in our recent schedule, uh, a little bit more proactive. But in these quick reacting reviews, we tend to be a little bit stat lighter, although we will hit hit some stats and we will just focus on our experiences. And and honestly, yeah. in, this, in this particular game, we are going to talk a lot of shit because I have a policy as an honest human that if you ask for an ass kicking, I'm going to give you one. Right. That's I think that's the that's the fair thing to do. But before we do that, if you would like to hear me give even more floridly inappropriate blasphemous ass kickings verbally, you are 100 percent invited to go over to patreon.com forward slash chapel bell curve, where for as little as one dollar, you can join our Patreon and get access to an amazing discord community of people who think and love the dogs the way that you think about and love the dogs we've had several meetups over the last year we've had we've had cbc meetups that don't involve me and justin there was one that happened today yeah so we we think that this community is the best part of chapel bell curve and we would love to have you here so let's get into the episode qualitative review I want to hear about your experiences, Justin. But before that, I want to. We don't really have a lot of news out yet because it is Sunday. We don't have any injury updates on any of the injuries from mm-hmm. the game. But I did get a couple of quotes here from Kirby Smart, and I just want to get your. I want to get your response to them. Your emotional or yes, my in, raw, in, unadulterated response. I, yeah, I want, I want the pure, unfiltered stuff right here. Okay, you ready? Yes. All right. They, he's talking about his team after the game, and he says, Kirby Smart, that is. They play together. They stuck to the plan. When you stick to the plan, you got a hell of a chance. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. That was our theme. We told them we wanted to play right out, right here in our box. Exactly what happened. It was beautiful. It, it just felt like Georgia was in sync like I haven't seen them all year. Like, for instance, the one thing I will, I will mention that I really loved watching all day was the way that Darnell Washington and Brock Bowers played in tandem 
the entire day on offense. And it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that that like sort of um, like watching the two of them shift on the line, you know, every once in a while uh, between plays was one of my favorite things of the day. It was it very much was like it, it felt sort of like a an allegory or metaphor for just how well this team mm-hmm. is gelling right now in exactly yeah. the way that Kirby is talking about right here. Yeah, I think that nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. I I, I am a particular sucker for pithy slogans, and I think that's a really mm-hmm. appropriate one because I think it is emblematic of the plan that especially defensively UGA came in with, which was that UGA felt like it didn't have to do anything fake to get an advantage on this in this game. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is UGA didn't attempt anything strategically to hide their talent. They didn't attempt no. to give their defensive backs help. They didn't attempt to help their run defenders in the box against light, you know, heavy, heavy run against light boxes. They just basically gambled, not even gambled, but bet on the fact that they had more talent and they had guys who could make plays. And that's what happened. Right. And I think that it's interesting to see when coach speak is tied to like an effectively implemented tactic or strategy you know it's very clear that the coaches coming in their attitude was we have more talent than you we have a plan we think we can line up and just beat you and make Mm -hmm. your the schematic advantage that tennessee has because of their offense just not matter and it's interesting how at least from someone i mean i have dabbled in leadership stuff and and i think from sort of just like a communication and leadership standpoint is interesting to see like how kirby smart's communication is very in line with the actual like physical things that he's asking his players to do. Uh, mm-hmm. So the only other quote I found that I would love your, your, your response to that I really liked is Kirby shouting out all of the fans. One of many people mm-hmm. who shout out the fans at Sanford today or Saturday, which uh, is kind of a, what will be sort of a theme throughout this episode. I suspect, but yeah. he said of the fans, even when it rained, Claude Felton, who is the sports information director at UGA, made mention that at the start of the second half, there wasn't an empty seat in the house other than the ones Tennessee purchased, which, <laughs> LOL, what a petty bitch Kirby is. We love uh... him so much. We love him so much. Kirby, it, we'll get to this in a second, but he said, our fans were elite today. We asked them to be. They responded, and they get the second place vote because the, the players on this team bought in, and I think he's implying, and they get the first place vote. So do you have any responses to that? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the benefit of watching at home and on the TV is that something that was added from, you know, from an audience point of view, our commentary when watching the game, I watched the first half at home and I watched the second half over at a friend's house for their birthday. And every single time there was a shot of the stadium, I first I was afraid that a lot of people were going to sell their tickets because I think that I would have a hard time not selling a ticket to a game where the tickets were almost a thousand dollars plus on average. Um, mm-hmm. but I was very excited, very pleased, um, very proud that the moment that the stadium was in view, there was way more red than orange. And if Tennessee did, who is historically a very good team that travels, if they did come out, they must have hung out elsewhere because <laughs> it was definitely much more obvious that the, it was a sea of red out there. And then just as he said, uh, you know, when the, when the rain did start and we got in the second half. It was just absolutely nothing but Georgia there. And it was it was awesome. I, I saw uh, there was a very wholesome homie moment of two guys under, you know, sharing an umbrella that uh, made it to TV. There were just a lot of people just absolutely yeah. drenched, um, I w- screaming, I watched... happy, excited. Ugh. 
I watched the replay of those two guys, and I saw those two guys, and I don't know if you noticed, mm-hmm. but they were both wearing matching t-shirts that said, them goddamn dogs, which I think is very good. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I have, I have yeah, one more. Yeah, it was good. I, yeah. I, in, in the annals of Kirby Smart is a petty bitch, and we love him for it, the the only other quote I want to give you from the post game is, uh, mm-hmm. I'm. he says, I'm so proud of this university and these kids. They practiced their butt off for two weeks. Now, here's the thing that's funny about that. You may or may not recall that last week, down by, I believe, the St. John's River in Jacksonville, there was another football game where Georgia played a team that was not Tennessee. And what I love about this is, and this is maybe more of a galaxy brain conspiracy theory on the part of Twitter and UGA Twitter, but the idea that Kirby is like, we didn't need to practice for Florida, we just thought we could beat them, is so just like yummy, 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 yummy for me because it, Kirby played for Georgia during the like high end of Steve Spurrier's time at Georgia and start <laughs> at Florida. And so like the idea that Kirby is still just like has it in the bag for Florida is just so tasty to me. Like I, I think the generally I suspect that most coaches are inherently unmoved by issues of rivalry and, you know, school spirit and that really like distaste that coaches have for particular teams or or schools are really more about distaste for particular coaches. So I really love the idea that Kirby smart is a consummate professional professional, but also just kind of like really fucking hates Florida Mm -hmm. that, that like really just like mm, that does it for me. Also, I'm pretty sure Kirby smart was on the Alabama staff during the Tim Tebow era. So that also makes it's like, Oh, I love that man so much. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that that's as close as we can get to Newsy today because we haven't had the media appearances, but we will cover those in our Mississippi State preview episode. So, Justin, tell me yeah. about your experience on the day. Yeah, um, I started yesterday out with the board retreat, and so uh, by the time f- you know football came around, I was already pretty tired. But uh, I got to enjoy the game, as I said before, half in my home, half in the comfort of a friend's home for their birthday. And it was just a lovely time, I will say, you know, we, you know, right out of the gate, it was a little messy, you know, that those first few plays, a little weird, a little messy. Um, But it wasn't surprising, I guess, is the thing, because Tennessee, Tennessee definitely came out like you could tell they came out chippy, like they felt very much like a dog with zoomies at moments where they were just so excited to be there. And they just could not contain themselves. And there was just a chaos that was just bubbling right under the surface of uh, of this team at all times, even on those, those definitely in those first few drives, I would say, and then throughout the day again. But, you know, near the end of the day, you could tell that they were definitely a little bit deflated uh, by by their just the game in general, I guess. But what sort of things did I see? I guess uh, I mean, after that first sort of, you know, shaking out the shaking off the like the cobwebs and whatnot. I felt like the game was just absolute it was art. It was art to watch. It was beautiful. And we're gonna get into why we feel that way into the quantitative segment. But I just want to kind of make a callback to some of the, you know, all of the the Tennessee shit talking that we saw coming into this weekend of just completely unsubstantiated, you know, without real precedence or statistical anything <laughs> just just the noise that came from tennessee fans going into this weekend um what one in particular what mismatch did these tennessee fans think they saw like the amount of shit talking i saw online is just it still baffles me now and it's still going on which is the craziest part is 
all these teams talking about how overrated Georgia is, or not these teams, mm. but this Tennessee team and their fan base talking about how overrated Georgia is. And I just, I'm, I don't understand. I don't get it, Nathan. Um, I wanted to ask you though, from your experience, you know, this could be a good segue into your experience as you share it, but how many times did you hear Rocky Top yesterday? Okay, so I'm trying to think carefully because I was kind of keeping it out in my head. So mm-hmm. they played it when the team came out for pregame warmups. Okay. Okay. They played it when the team came out of the tunnel. That's two. I believe they played it one more time before the start of the game. Then, from what I could hear, and it was hard to hear because of the insane atmosphere, which was so good. But from what I can hear, they they played it once after one of the fumble recoveries. I believe they played it after when we had the like traded fumble recoveries where they had a fumble and then we had a fumble immediately. And then they played it after the fumble recovery in in the first quarter. So I think it was between five and ten, maybe more like between five and eight, which is absolutely buck wild because normally the Rocky Top count is like 40. Yeah, it's a sandstorm level of. of Yeah, absolutely. So as for my experiences, okay, I'm going to try to end with my Tennessee fan experiences because I think that can transition us back in, into our next segment here. I, let's see, I, I got to see a bunch of people. There were some people I would wanted to see who had sort of texted me about, hey, I'm going to be at the game and I didn't manage to hook up with them. So if you're one of those people, I'm very sorry. I, I believe the guys <laughs> over at My God, a podcast were trying to meet up with me and I just like have no service near the stadium. And so I'm sorry if you're listening to this. Um, but I did get to meet up with some people, uh, our Twitter follower and discord patron aficionado Zonlaw was there with his son and they came to the practice in the morning and his son is a trumpet player, I believe a sophomore in high school. And that was really nice. They came all the way down from Kentucky, I think. And he got to come and hang out next to us at the dog walk. And I think, I hope it was a good experience. He said he was, he said his son was like really blown away by the red coats. So that was really fun. I also saw my friend Rudy, who was my Rudy? Rudy was my for multiple years the band captain of my high school band. And I just I we I guess have kept up via Facebook over the past like 15 years. I haven't seen him in a long time. And he was like, I guess he has really good seats because he was right on the track on the north side of the stadium as we walked in. And I just was like, oh shit, it's Rudy. Hey man. <laughs> And we got to catch up and take a picture together. It was really great. Let's see. In terms of the game, I, the first, I've been going to games at UJ since 2006, which is not, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the vast UGA fandom is actually pretty, a pretty young, a pretty short amount of time. I know there are people who still remember when Herschel was playing between the hedges, but in the time since I've played, I've been to some pretty big games. Uh, my, Let's see. The first game I was at at UGA was Western Kentucky, September 2nd, 2006, which was a, uh, I believe, a Jefferson Pilot special. But anyway, but in that time, (laughs) I've seen some big games in Sanford. I mean, I was there for the 2007 blackout. I was there for both of the times that we got our ass kicked by Alabama. I was there for the 2013 LSU game. And yesterday was the loudest I've ever heard Sanford. And I was, and keep in mind, like when I say I was there for the 2007 blackout, I was on the field during pregame next to the tunnel when they ran out with the black jerseys. So I think in terms of the 2007 blackout experience, I got about the highest decibel level that you can. 
But I'm just telling yeah. you, like, from a down-to-down basis, that was the loudest I have ever heard Sanford. And it was loud pretty much from the snap, the first snap. I mean, like, if anything, <laughs> that first turnover when Dejon Edwards uh, popped the ball out, like, I think on the, like, fifth or sixth play from scrimmage when UJ first had the yep. ball, it really that was really what, like, kicked things off. Like, it, it was absolutely unhinged. I thought the game day atmosphere was really good. I thought the Redcoats played the hell out of that game. We had a really good halftime show. Uh, they did like a psychedelic show where they had a, we had our Connor who is this, he's a cymbal player, but he's a really good guitar player. And he played the battle, the battle hymn solo, a la Jimi Hendrix playing the uh, anthem or whatever from Woodstock. It was mm-hmm. a really cool halftime show, but the Redcoats were just so loud. And I thought that yesterday was, for people who are interested in this kind of a masterclass for most of the time and how to manage a game day atmosphere. Uh, look, promotions is promotions. And like, you're going to have like commercials on the video board. That's just how it, ha- how it happens. So I did think there were a couple of times where I was like, Oh man, that, you know, <laughs> that promotion or whatever really took the wind out of everybody's sails. But for the most part, it was a really, especially in the second half, it was just like the lit the whole way through and the people running the video board, the people running promotions, the people running the whole stadium, I think did a really good job. There was a moment where they played sweat. They did like the swag surfing thing and the whole bottom bowl was just like rocking back and forth. They got to do light up Sanford. They they hit the lights. Everyone freaked out. The Redcoats did something that they have never done before to my knowledge in the history of Redcoats, which was that there was some talk among the actual current Redcoats that we we're playing choker too much when it wasn't, or sorry, we're playing the, the choker is like the third down thing. It's the DCRA, the bum, 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 bum. And so there was some talk about like, Oh, well we should try to save choker for third and fourth down. And so Dr. Bacham, Brett, like at the last minute, I think he did this at Friday's practice. He was like, okay, that's fine. Play a concert G as loud as you can, as in like the note G, <laughs> which I yep. guess G for Georgia or whatever. So if you, Here, the Redcoats making just like a massive noise on first and second down. That was actually something that we put in like 24 hours before the game started, less than 24 hours Mm -hmm. before the game started. And it worked. I mean, it really had an effect. And I mean, the the results speak for themselves. Seven false start penalties. I think eight, if you count like an illegal formation penalty kind of thing. And it was it was absolutely nuts from from getting in. I actually thought that the rain helped. There was this. There's okay. So in, I want to say 2015, 2016, the last time we hosted Bama, we, which I'm going to, I think was 2015. It doesn't matter. The last time we hosted Bama, it was a miserable game and it rained all day and we just got our absolute asses kicked. And there was a moment yeah. in the second half, we were getting our asses kicked so much that like everyone who was going to stay, were just like, whatever, I'm soaked. I guess I'll just kind of enjoy <laughs> it in a nihilist way. Mm-hmm. But I got the feeling that this was like, it was the opposite of that yesterday when, when the rain came down, I felt like it was the crowd, at least the vibe. I, you know, this is like an inherently vibes take, so I can't prove this, but the vibe that I got from the crowd was the crowd was like, whatever, like dogs on top, dogs by a million dogs till I die. I don't care if I get pneumonia, like damn the torpedoes. Like I, nobody left. <laughs> like uh, there were people I, I got to see Ian, who was one, one of our discord patrons who recently got engaged. And he, um, was that who I saw? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not embarrassing yeah. myself. No, that, that absolutely happened. He talked about that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. The last 24 hours have it. been kind of crazy. So like, 
I was like, oh, it's Ian and his new fiance. And I was t- I was like, oh, you guys have had such a great weekend. Do you want to, do you want to, do you want a poncho? Cause they, they got really wet and they're like, nah, we're just going to, we're just going to be wet or whatever. And like the, yesterday was the kind of game where until Ian tagged me on the discord and was like, thanks so much to, to Nathan for, you know, offering us ponchos. I had such a good time. It was such an enjoyable day. And you guys were like world class and, you know, Brett saw us and and we showed him the ring and he gave us a thumbs up or whatever. I was like, okay, so that did happen. Like yesterday was just such a, <laughs> it like, wasn't a fever dream. wild fever dream of a day in the best possible way. It was just like, my takeaway was almost like, do you remember when, well, of course everyone remembers this, but you know, every time during the Mark Richt era and the beginning of the Kirby Smart era, when we'd be like, we want Bama, we're ready. And then we would play mm-hmm. them and we were wrong. We did not want Bama. We were not ready. Yeah. Yesterday we were Bama. Look at me. I'm Bama now. Like we are, we are the people <laughs> that look at me. I, the college football goes through us now. That's wild. That is absolutely insane. And I, I mean, I got 25,000 steps and oh gosh. It, in continuing the theme of like Nathan talks about his personal body horror stuff from last week, I you know when when a person as, as such as me, I I am this person who has let's say thunder thighs, uh, is in the rain and gets really wet and then has to walk <laughs> another two to three miles. There can uh-huh. be some there can be some rubbing of muscle against muscle that isn't natural. So uh, I was just like not doing well by the time I walked all the way back to the iron fields. Cause I parked next to the red coat field, like an idiot. So I walked all the way back to the, the red coat field from the, the stadium. And by the time I rounded that last corner, I wasn't really around anybody. And I was just doing a, the full on like sumo wrestler into enters the enters the arena walk, just like one foot up feet wide in horse pose, but everything's better. Now I got some aqua for we, we, we hydrated. We're good. I've moisturized. I'm in my lane. These bike Proud thighs, they did they did not respond well to the wet pants, is all I'm saying. But yeah, uh that oh, let's talk about Tennessee fans, because this is gonna lead us into our next segment, which which is I am tentatively calling we haven't really planned this segment out, but Justin, I think that this is something that you're very good at riffing on. I'm tentatively calling this is that right? the sec yeah, I'm tentatively calling I don't even know this what we're segment, doing yet. This, this segment is called Die Mad, you salty bitches. So I want to talk oh, about good. Tennessee fans. So we were walking in with the band and the band's playing. And of course, Tennessee's band uh, is about the most class act band that you're going to find. They are recently under new management. They got a new band director, but they're, they're sweet people. But so it wasn't really coming from them, but we, we were going down past the front of the visitor stands on the track and Tennessee fans, man, they had something to say, man. I heard people say like, stop. It's not too late. You can still graduate from somewhere other than Georgia, which for the record, and I couldn't yell this in the moment, but I really wanted to stop and, and like pull up rankings for this guy. If you look at Tennessee's academic enhancement plan, what you will find is that one of their goal universities, one of their aspir- aspirational universities is, in fact, the University of Georgia. So fuck that guy. Oof. And then there was just a lot of like just really mean shit talking to the band, which like whatever. I'm sure that there are a lot of Georgia fans who do that to opposing bands. Don't do that. But I'm sure that it happens. I wasn't like personally insulted on the band's behalf because we didn't care, but I was just like, these motherfuckers are coming into our house talking a lot of shit, talking a lot of shit. We don't heard you talking mm-hmm. shit. And and that to me is personally asking for an ass kicking because look, I'll say it, I've said it before and I've said it again. When it comes to Tennessee fans, hoes mad, man. Hoes mad. <laughs> so 
was there do you have any grievance to get off your chest i i have i have prepared a series of uh, like cold takes exposed twitter uh screenshots here on the notes i i was just wondering if there's any uh any of these that's that you want to read just to like publicly humiliate the people involved I, one thing that I think that it actually didn't make it to uh, this image board that you've created for us is the the rumor that apparently Stetson Bennett's cell phone got leaked and then got blown up all throughout the night on Friday just to like mm-hmm. try and keep him awake. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but just wanted to kind of that's if experiences that I want to get off my chest. That's one of the things like that's petty on the next level. Call on that poor mm-hmm. man's flip phone. Leave mm-hmm. him alone. He's just trying to sleep and play football. <laughs> Yep. Let him have one more year. Does he really uh, have a I flip will phone? Say, I think that was a rumor originally, like several years ago. I don't know if he still has a flip phone or not, but I think that God, that was something that's else amazing. That people talked about. And they were like, let's talk about who Stetson Bennett is as a man. Um, and one of the things was like, well, you know, he wears cowboy boots and, you know, uh, has a fade and also a flip phone. Uh, but then I saw he did something about his uh, on his Instagram himself. So I don't know. Oh, we're, we're getting some beep, 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 beep. Some uh, some breaking news that he upgraded after the natty, which makes sense. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. the one image that I have here that you have here actually that, that was from before that really got me was the these Georgia fans seriously think they're they'll keep us under thirty. We're finding a mismatch and abusing it all day. I have zero doubt. <laughs> yeah, that one's that one's good. Finding a mismatch and abusing good. it all day is just mm, mm, yummy, 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 yummy. Uh, because I, I think the abuse went one way yesterday. Another one be. that I'm another one I really like. And look, I, I'm usually not big about feeding the trolls, but sometimes feeding the trolls is giving the engagement by tagging them. So don't tag this mm-hmm. person at all uh, in our in whenever we post this or whatever, because like I don't want him because it's got to be a him to get engagement. Is that guy big game boomer? That mm-hmm. guy has so many bad takes, but he did say Tennessee is going to get absolutely smoked. He's going to absolutely smoke Georgia and Athens. It won't even be close, which like uh-huh. he has been wrong about so many things among which I think he put Neyland stadium in like the 10 quietest stadiums in the sec. And yeah, it is basically just like an erector set, a director set for a giant to shit in. I get that, that it's not good, but like, let's not argue about whether or not it's loud. Anyway, uh, the other one I really liked was that everyone except for I never thought I'd be like standing Luke Bryan or whatever, but uh, Luke Bryant. See, I don't even know his name, Luke but Bryan. everybody except no for the yeah, everybody except for the UGA guest picker picked Tennessee at, at on game day, which also just was like, mm, mm, <laughs> mm, your, your, your tears fuel me. Your, your te- I am the country tears. girl and I shook it for him. Luke Bryan, that is. I'm coming back, looping back around. <laughs> Luke Bryan. Is Luke Bryan the one that's like secretly super progressive? Yes. Yeah. He is one of those. He's Good. the country girl shake it for me. Yeah. I've heard I've heard rumor that country girl shake it for me makes certain members of this Discord feral, which I yes, would be I interested in seeing what that looks like. Is it like a goblin thing? Where it's goblin mode. Yeah, um, they pull out. They pull out like an improvised sword and just start hacking at people. Yeah, I think that goblin mode isn't inherently sexual, is what it is, and so feral feral mode is a bit more like it. It has a possibility, though it is not inherently mm. one or the other. Not mutually mm. exclusive. Here's one. I, I'm going to just throw this one out here. We don't have to. I don't want to call out individual people who are just private citizens or whatever. But historically speaking, <laughs> UGA is only a slightly more successful uh, than Kentucky as a program. 
just let that one sink in. Let that one hmm. let, let, just. I suggest you let that one marinate. Mm. Uh, mm, I expect this yes. to be an easy dub for the Vols on Saturday, 45-24. Very good. Hendon Heisman, that's great. Uh, if that pissed you off, wait until you tune in next week when Georgia is ranked number seven. Mm. These short mm, defense no, 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 no. think they'll keep us under 30, LMAO. Oh, we already said that one. Uh, LMAO, all these UGA fans out here giving us the same line Bama <laughs> did. And this is in the SpongeBob font. They won't do that to our defense. Yeah, we're going to fucking torch you too. Really, is that true? So I, I respond in... In SpongeBob, uh, in SpongeBob font as well. Now, I will say we'll, we'll leave the best. <laughs> the best for last is Eric Ainge, who just and good for Eric Ainge. Humble humility. He fell on his sword here. He was nice about it. He apologized, but he did say, and this was, I believe, the Thursday before the game. You can tell my voice is going out because I sound like a little baby girl, a uh, little baby boy. Just, <laughs> just, just uh, testosterone. Just I don't have any money. Yeah. Uh, But Eric Ainge, former Tennessee quarterback, who probably threw an interception as he typed these words, said playing between the hedges is overrated. Not that loud and definitely not intimidating. It's nothing like playing in Neyland. Falls will be just fine in Athens. And then he hit send on that and someone delivered him a pizza that he had ordered and he opened it up and it was just a pair of defensive backs hands that he somehow threw another interception. Anyway. (laughs) I mean, y'all got me out here. I feel like. I feel like Tennessee, I felt Tennessee, all Tennessee's done in the last like seven days is turned me into fucking John Wick. I felt like I had gone straight and I had murdered my way out of the person I was as a 20 year old. And I was, I had just like taken all of the worst parts of me and concreted over it in my basement. But y'all got me out here like, like pulling out my gold coins and putting on my all black suit or whatever. Like, I, I feel like. <laughs> I listened back to myself talking about Tennessee on the preview episode, and I don't remember saying any of that. You know, I'll also say uh, another little meme that I got. I got a lot of different calls and texts and just general messages from folks uh, after the game yesterday, like congratulating me personally as if I had something to do with <laughs> you know the win, mm-hmm. which I really appreciated. Uh, and then one of my favorites was my uncle sent me a picture of Smokey, and he just said... <laughs> Smokey has entered the transfer portal. And I was like, bring that dog home. <laughs> bring him home. Bring him home. <laughs> bring him home. Come on home, all dogs. We'll, we'll, all we'll dogs. take the, we'll take the river Georgia. rights. To, we'll take we'll take the water rights to the to the Chattahoochee River Spur. And we will also mm-hmm. take Smokey all day. Yep. Hashtag free Smokey. All Come right. So do we have anything else now that we've gotten through our die magic salty bitch segment? Which I, I think might I only think so. come for Tennessee. <laughs> oh, oh, no. I think you have some here. <laughs> oh, the um, this was something just in in episode prep. We were just writing some things down, some some Rocky Top variants. You know, if it's not Rocky Top on top, in the same sort of you know, inspired by the idea of if Tank Bigsby is having a hard time, he's you know Jeep Middlesby or even yeah. what are the smaller ones like Coop uh, um, Coop Smallsby? You know, <laughs> Coop Smallsby. Yeah, Coop, Coop Smallsby yeah. is um, what he doesn't play. What of our Rocky? What are our Rocky Top variants? You know, if it's not. Rocky Top, you have, of course, Rocky Flop, um, Poppycock, uh, you had a Floppycock. <laughs> yeah. And one of my favorites was, uh, I think that if they go feral mode, you could call them Sloppy Wop. And uh, those are just some of your Rocky <laughs> Top variants. Though, <laughs> if we're lucky, one day we'll get to see Sloppy Wop, but not this Sloppy week. Wop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how that's so gross. 
That's real gross. Sloppy I Wop. Not... Soggy Wop is the variant there, too. Soggy Wop is great because it's like, it makes me think of <laughs> Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And it's just George Clooney and the Soggy Bottom <laughs> Boys singing their, their famous bluegrass hit, Wop. Hold on. Let me just look up if oh, there's yeah. a bluegrass version of Wop. Give me a second. There's got to be. There's yeah, got to some... be. Bluegrass Wop. Wop in the style of Garth Brooks. Okay, that's pretty good. Okay. Yeah, no, Sloppy Wop is is repetitive. I I guess the thing that's grossing me out about it is not that I find anything about the female body gross. It's the idea that it makes me think of Sloppy Joes. Just like someone pouring Sloppy Joe, like, just all over their body. Like, I am the Sloppy Sloppy Joe. Sloppy to me, it, it sort of insinuates a lack of intention. Mm. is what it is you know you're just you, you know i don't know i i'm gonna get too deep into this and it's not gonna go anywhere good no soggy wop i think is what happens when you're in a dunk tank for too long it has milk <laughs> i was thinking it. yeah it's <laughs> that's the pruny fingers effect <laughs> oh my <laughs> that's <soggy> god <laughs> it's just like every time we start recording i think this is the time we won't say something just absolutely out of pocket and Absolutely. every time we don't. Mm-hmm. I was thinking a soggy wop was a clothes situation where you're just soaked through, but I like a uh, I like a pretty finger instead. Soggy wop is like what happens in the last scene of the Notebook. No, not the part where they die, but the part where they meet back up in the rain. <laughs> soggy wop. All right. Oh let's man, move can on we please so. get? Can we please get? the soggy body soggy bottom boys perform wop i really need that anyway it's time for the quantitative musicians yeah i i could probably make this happen it's time for the quantitative review this is the portion of the episode where we take off of we take off our our we hate tennessee's caps and we put on our normal georgia fan caps and our hopefully intelligence caps and we have something interesting to say about the game we will be using all of our stats today are either from Ross Rutledge over at R2 Sports Metrics and mm-hmm, Dog mm-hmm. Quant on Twitter, or we'll be using some stuff from the Game on Paper Advanced Statistical Box Score. So, oh yeah, we have a lot of notes here. I think they're not in any particular order. It's very clear that we just got in here and just just vomited out all of our all of our thoughts and, and thoughts. analysis. <laughs> Not feeling so much, just mainly thoughts. I want to start with what I thought was the most cogent sort of one tweet mm, yes. analysis of this game. This is from Richard Johnson of Splits and Duo, Duo and Sports Illustrated, who is my personal favorite sort of national college football reporter. If you're not following him, you should be. He's a very good writer and he has some interesting things to say, despite being a Florida fan, which is how you know I really like him because he's a Florida mm-hmm. fan. Anyway, so he said... He, he wrote about the Tennessee offense last year or last week in Sports Illustrated. And he said, and he wrote, he put a tweet out after the game that says, of the five tenets Tennessee's offense relies on, number one, tempo. They had eight procedural penalties. Number two, vertical runs. The game script got away from them, but they had 3.4 yards per carry. Number three, mm. vertical passes. Mm. They never heated deep shot. Number four, personnel placement. And five, spacing. They were forced to keep two backs in and pass pro, and it still didn't work, and they gave up a lot of pressures. And to me, from the the highest level of just first brush analysis, I think fundamentally this kind of leads me into my biggest thought about the game, which is that 
Tennessee's offense is inherently about exploiting sort of tactical and strategic weaknesses in order to even out any deficiencies in talent. It is not the triple option, but it serves a similar role to the triple option because with enough speed and tempo and spacing, a team with relatively fewer talented players can outplay a team with more talented players, right? And this is what Mm -hmm. Tennessee did against Alabama. It's what they've been doing all year. Now, Tennessee is not an untalented team by any means, means, but they are a team that is forced to play in the same conference as three or four of the most talented teams in the nation, right? And they have to play every year in the cross-divisional matchup what is, on average, the most talented team in the nation or has been since 2007 or whatever, right? So the whole fundamental sort of logical premise that Tennessee's success lies on is in exploiting that mismatch. And what I find interesting about this game was that Georgia basically beat that mismatch, right? Beat that strategic advantage that is supposed to outweigh a talent advantage just with talent. It's not that Georgia never did anything interesting schematically, I think, on the defense. I think they did a lot of stuff with with zone pressure and fire and what, you know, like fire blitzes, zone blitzing out off of the edges that even, I mean, it was obvious enough that Gary Danielson picked up on it. And so I think mm-hmm. obviously UGA had a, a <laughs> pretty intense game plan defensively. Shut up, Gary is all I'm saying. But ultimately the whole, the quote that we read at the top of the episode, you know, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide was essentially, I think the point of their game plan for the game, which was that, we think that we have enough players that can beat your players one-on-one that your Mickey Mouse offense doesn't matter. Now, I say Mickey Mouse in the sense that, you know, you'd never see it run in the NFL, not in the sense that it doesn't work. But I think it's clear that Georgia thought that they were talented enough that it didn't matter what strategic or tactical advantage that Tennessee thought that they have. And all, and ultimately, that was, what, that was the game, right? Mm-hmm. So... What were your thoughts? I, 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 that's my like ten thousand point view, foot view. I, I wonder if you could maybe give us some more like detailed feedback or whatever detailed moments in the game that stood out to you. So looking, so I, w- I would be happy to. I'd be happy to provide a few things that we can see here from our game on paper stats, but also from just our experiences watching the game. Um, I will say from just the eye test, this was a game where, like previous games, where we seem to perceive this team as struggling. Um, that did not happen in this game in the same way. There were moments where I think Tennessee outplayed Georgia, but in past games, it always felt like when we got to see those moments, it was more like Georgia was outplaying Georgia in those moments. And they were kind Mm -hmm. of, uh, they were their own worst enemy and they got the best of themselves. I think that the moments where Georgia had turnovers, they, you know, um, lost the ball a few times. Those were created by Tennessee. It was not a Georgia shot themselves in the foot kind of thing. Um, Very early in the game, it looks like the lowest percentage of a win percentage that Georgia had in their favor was 66%. Still a pretty solid uh, win percentage there. That was immediately after the Dejon Edwards uh, punched the ball out of his arms. And then the rest of the game, Mm -hmm. it went straight up from there and sat well above 90% for the rest of the game, which is fantastic. It climbed steadily until it got there. Georgia looked explosive today, uh, and that's 
feels good because I don't feel like that's something we could say about this team normally. They play well, they play successfully, they play efficiently and effectively. However, they played really well and explosive today, uh, and we had a lot of really great plays, lots of great wheel routes uh, that Tennessee just could not seem to understand <laughs> or yeah. stop. Uh, which I speaking really, really of the enjoyed. shoe being on the other foot, though, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it felt really good to be able. It it felt in a lot of ways like the ways that we've been praising Tennessee all year felt like we were praising Georgia for the same reasons yesterday. Mm-hmm. In addition to the things that Georgia does well and continued to do well yesterday. They went out, they said, here's our plan, and then they executed that plan. They kept, as you said, and Richard Johnson said, they kept them off their tempo. They made sure that that hurry-up offense did not get any traction the entire Mm -hmm. day. They made sure that if their their receivers were going to sit on the sidelines, which they did, that they were going to have somebody on them the entire time. This Georgia team Mm -hmm. played man defense pretty much the entire day, and it was lights out. It was fantastic. That... Uh, one of the the pieces that I really loved, and I'll get into in just a second, was the Ringo interception. Because um, I want to talk about just the art that we witnessed. You know, Georgia could open a museum with the art we mm-hmm. saw created this, Absolutely. this this afternoon. Well, and Absolutely I think beautiful. I think to sort of reinforce your point in terms of mm-hmm. Georgia just being good and being able mm-hmm. to take Tennessee's punch. I mean, I think it is in terms of explosiveness, like you were saying, it's worth pointing out that per game on paper that Georgia's explosiveness rate in this game, which was 8% of explosive plays was good for 44th percentile over the last couple of years, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, below average, but not like in the 10th percentile, which is where they have normally been. And when you have a team that is as talented as the dogs are this year, you know, you're in trouble when they start doing things well, that they haven't done well. And this happened sort of with sacks as well. Right. Like, and I, I think it is just, man, it is just interesting to point out that Georgia didn't necessarily statistically play its best game yesterday because in the second half, we kind of just like, I think, intentionally sat on their face. Well, no, hold on. That sounds wrong. We intentionally <laughs> sat on their chest and just like, you know, squeeze the air out of them. Uh, but I think it's just worth pointing out that like Georgia didn't have its best statistical day in, in many categories. And yet this was still a domination. Like you said, like when Dejon Edwards turned the ball over and you have a note about this feeling this way as well. I still never really felt like we were going to win or we were going to lose this game. There was never a moment where you saw other than in the fourth quarter when they had the drive that eventually ended in a touchdown. There was never a moment where you just saw Tennessee wide receivers running free in the secondary, even when they were Mm -hmm. catching the ball or getting open. They were very quickly tackled. There wasn't a lot of yards after the catch going on. There wasn't a lot of just, but there weren't, to my knowledge, more than like one or two busted coverages in the game. And I think it's worth, you know, I think what sort of Georgia's plan hinged around was it is hard to deliver a ball accurately deep down the sideline when you have a dude in your face. And that is, that was basically Georgia's game plan. If it was, it was harder. I watched the replay this morning and it was kind of hard to see this on the replay because CBS's camera work kind of leaves some things to be desired sometimes. But it, or their, mm-hmm. ca- their production work, I guess their cameras are fine. They just don't choose the right feeds. But anyway, I it was hard to see this when I watched it on TV. But in the moment, it, to me, it was very obvious that like pretty much every time Hen and Hooker just launched one deep, except for that deep cross route that they hit to set up the touchdown, he had a guy in his face or wrapped around him. So yeah, it makes sense oh, that yeah. he was overthrowing everything by two yards because he was throwing under duress constantly absolutely constantly like georgia had six credited sacks it probably should have been more like seven or eight 
right? They, in terms of Havoc plays created, they had seven Havoc plays passing that's good for 18% of Tennessee's uh, dropbacks. They just were constantly in Hooker's face. And even when they didn't get him down to the ground, they were, you know, they were altering his launch angle. They were making him backpedal. They were making him try to step up in the pocket. And I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just interesting to me. To me, this felt like a more systemic domination. It wasn't just that Georgia was the better team or played better, which they did. It was that Georgia just flat out coached Tennessee. Just absolutely oh, yeah. out coached Tennessee. Let me let me point out a couple things that I to kind of support what you're talking about too, just kind of the domination and kind of help better illustrate this as well. Something I find really interesting. Do you know roughly when it started raining on Saturday? It started raining. I mean, basically in the time between we got up in the stands after halftime and the start of the third quarter. So it was probably the first couple of plays of the third quarter. So there was a narrative that I saw that some people were kind of talking about um, online. And it was that this could have been a lot nastier if it had not started raining. Because what people kind of witnessed and they saw is that when it did start raining, Georgia kind of took their, their their foot off the gas and they started running the ball a lot more just to sort of manage the clock, get things done. Um, and that would have made this an even bigger statement, uh, statement win than it already was. But the reason why I find that interesting is because going back up to game on paper, looking at the expected points chart, you see Georgia is right around like plus 14, plus 15, plus 15, plus 15. And then right around when the rain starts, we go from plus 12 down to seven and then it it shoots even lower from there as the game sort of progresses but it was a sharp decline at that point as they Mm -hmm. began to start running the ball uh another really interesting thing that i think is very exciting for me is that looking at the most important plays determined by game on paper the uh these are all determined by the absolute win percentage uh average and all of them but one were all in the first quarter Meaning to me, you could interpret this potentially that this game was determined by the end of the first quarter, (laughs) which I love. It's fantastic. And then for the rest of the game, Tennessee had uh, one play that helped them out a bit. It was the Chase McGrath field goal to put them at six points on the day. And the rest was as we saw. I mean, I had a feeling, let's see, we went out with about nine minutes left to get the front ensemble equipment because I always help with the the Mm -hmm. miking with all the, the sound stuff because we had uh guitar soloist so that was really important but we got out with about nine minutes left so i had the front ensemble stuff down in the southwest corner tunnel and then southwest corner gate to the field with like five six minutes left and so i got to kind of watch that whole last georgia drive from the field and there was a moment on a third down where we let the clock run down and we shouldn't have it even kirby said he wishes he had taken a time out there just to give us a little more time on that because we would have had another down to try for a touchdown there. But I, when we went up 24 to six, which was the last play of the game, like that or the last play of the half, that was just like, again, this is totally anecdotal. This is a vibes take, but that was, it just didn't feel like Tennessee was going to be able to do anything. And it wasn't, there wasn't a sense of, uh, there wasn't a sense of like urgency from Georgia's team, I mean, obviously, if you look at that defensive mm-hmm. performance in the third and fourth quarter where they just held Tennessee so many times, but mm-hmm. there was just a sense that like Georgia had a plan and they knew they could execute the plan and they got up by, 
you know, 14, then 16 points. And they were like, okay, this is our plan. We are going to just sit on this game and make you score. And it was one of those things where the time, it was one of those times where like game management and time management really, really mattered at the end of the game or towards the end of the game, because Georgia just held the ball for so much. They had like a nine minute drive in the third quarter. They ended in a field goal for their last points of the game, but that didn't even matter that it was ended in a field goal. What mattered was that it was a nine minute drive, right? By the time Tennessee really gets something moving on offense after having all those penalties and sacks, and then they turn the ball over at downs and they get the ball back. By the time they got something moving on offense, there was five minutes left to play in the game, right? And they're down Mm -hmm. 21 points. And so to me, that's that's what mattered about the game. Or that's what, like, that's how the game was won. You're right. It was kind of over in the first quarter. But I, by halftime, I think Georgia very clearly had figured out, like, the more this goes on, the more the pressure is on them, right? And especially, I think one of the big turning points in the second half was in particular when we had, they had the turnover on downs where they had, like, three consecutive sacks. I think that was really when the game was over. So let well, me you want go to talk about art a second. Yeah. Yeah. You had yeah, that. I, was about to say, talk I want to talk about the, the art, art of this game. Yeah. <laughs> the beautiful art. Just the, and I want you to add any, any more art that you'd like to hang in the Georgia museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like I said a second ago, we could open a museum with the amount of art we, we witnessed being created. It was like, this was a beautiful game. The Ringo interception, for instance, were absolute work of art. Geely Ringo and Cedric Tillman were running on the sideline. Cedric Tillman was so covered that it looked like, Ringo was the intended receiver when he intercepted Hooker's downfield throw. Mm-hmm. I was just like, ah, ah. And it was it was beautiful. They battled the entire way down. Then he beat him, got right in front of him. It just landed beautifully in his hands. The Can we talk for a second about the 0.5 yard line punt? <laughs> yeah. Thor, <laughs> uh, the son of thunder uh, from down under. Thought of son of thunder. He did it. I mean, this, this is the beauty of it. Like we've had good punters in the past. And I'm not saying he's better or worse than any single punter, but that was the single best punt I have ever seen in a game. And it was made even better by the fact that the guys were chasing it to make sure that it landed there, but it did not need them. Yeah. It was going out at that one yard line regardless of who was there at the very end. Dove. Um, but yeah, just the commitment to make that happen. Well, it was fantastic. just a... Just the whole that was one of those one of those special teams plays where like everybody did their job exactly correct. And yes. And, you know, the result was obviously what you saw. And and I think in honor of in honor of Brett Thorson having just like the world's greatest punt, I would like to briefly tell a bad joke, uh, a bad Please. Australian joke. Are you ready? All right. So Gordon Ramsay goes to Australia and he does a live cooking show and he gets up in front of the, the crowd and they they're sort of like indifferent to him because he's Gordon Ramsay and some people hate him. And so he he's like, okay, well, I'm going to play the hits. I'm, I'm going to just do the, the simplest, the, the, the dessert that everyone, lo- uh, everyone loves. So he makes a lemon rank pie. And as he goes through the process of making the crust and whipping the egg whites and creating the filling and then blind baking and baking it, it the crowd gets like more and more into it. And finally he pulls the pie out of the oven and he sits it on the table and the crowd goes, absolutely wild like standing ovation rafters falling down people throwing panties at the stage and he just looks out at them and he's like that's kind of weird because i would expect an australian audience to boo meringue that's a terrible joke <laughs> anyway that's, that's that one absolutely terrible that was for brett thorson the thunder from down under anyway oh boy okay. go ahead uh there was a drive in the fourth quarter where you know 
Tennessee was driving a good bit, and I remember looking at the score and being and the, kind of looking at the the clock and thinking they're just down fourteen points. They could come back. Like there was like five minutes left, and I thought if any team could do it, it's Tennessee. But uh, and then Georgia went on and sacked them five times in a row on that drive. Um, and you have it should have been seven, which is true because he did have those two runs that were right at the line of scrimmage. But um, you know they should have been sacks, but more or less sacks. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, Javon Bullard, I think, really came out on that one and Jalen Carter and made it happen. Then I really loved uh, Nolan Smith wandering the sidelines with Stetson's jersey on, just wandering around yeah. with his uh, his arm brace on and wearing his baby gap size Stetson Bennett jersey. Fantastic. <laughs> perfect. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. What other art did you see that you would like to add to the Georgia Museum of Art? Uh, well, okay. So this is this is sort of on our contested art section. This is the this is the art that has controversy in our museum because it was it was a safety. I don't know why refs don't like safety. to call safeties because safeties, I guess, affect the game so too much or something. It was a safety. That's all there is. Wake up, sheeple. There is a conspiracy, not against <laughs> UGA, but against safeties in general. Like they're they're yeah, give the, more safeties. Jet fuel can't melt melt safeties and that's steel safeties call the safety doofus like there was a five minute long review and they said the play stands which means they thought they could overturn it but they should have called it a safety in the begin with Uh uh i hate i hate it so much it was a safety let's just be honest about what it was anyway i thought the throw to the back of the end zone to marcus rosemey jackson was really an excellent example of how much some of these players that we watched for the past couple of years develop uh, Stetson was mm-hmm. on I think like his third read at that point you could see his head moving back and forth he clearly was not you know Jackson was not the the primary receiver there and he made an NFL level catch he got both feet down Stetson and this was something that on the replay Gary Danielson said that I think is worth pointing out is that like on that throw you were trained to throw it under the crossbar and Stetson put it like a foot under the crossbar it was a really good job from the offensive line, who I think were kind of the un I think were sort of the unheralded heroes in the night. They just kept Stetson clean the whole day and let him get to like his third his third target on that throw. So I think that I mean Stetson's not gonna win the Heisman probably this year, and that's fine. But if you have a question about to whether or not he is a game game manager to that, to me. Like that is the play that I would show as the response because that was just an NFL level throw. It was just picture perfect. Mm-hmm. The protection was good. It was a good route. It was a good throw all the way through. It'd be cool if he did though. Yeah. I mean, if, if I think if he at least got to New York, I would be really happy about that. Yeah. I think that'd be fair. Let him go to New York. He's probably never been. A couple of other <laughs> notes I have here that just like random things that I think impacted the game. We just really mm-hmm. handed them their ass on the lines of scrimmage all the way through. Uh, Tate Rattler oh, yes. had a really good day. I thought, you know, by the eye. And then we saw, I looked at the PFF grades and he was the highest graded lineman on the day, really coming into the promise he showed last year before he got that injury on like the fourth play. I thought that we had a couple of guys who were there in reserve. Del- Devin Willick, I think, played most of the game and, you know, replacing an injured player. And I don't know. I mean, I think the offensive line was really good. Obviously, Jalen Carter just absolutely wrecking ball. He put the center on his ass so many times, which the fact that that's Cade Mays' brother makes it just so much better. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and he just, I mean, the whole the whole day he was throwing people into the backfield. Even when he didn't have a sack, he had two fumbles uh, caused and 
pressures galore. I also thought that some of the guys that don't get as much attention on that defensive line really played well. Michael Williams was the second highest rated PFF defensive line player, which, you know, love or hate PFF. It at least gives you an idea of how well the player, the guy played outside of just their box score counting stats. Uh, I thought Zion mm-hmm. Logue and Nazir Stackhouse were just really, uh, really active. Tramiel Walthour looked really good. Dudes who, you know, are not going to be the Jordan Davis level first round draft picks, but obviously have a future in this program and maybe in the NFL if things work out right. And who just affected the pocket oftentimes and played really against the really good against the run set the edge. Well, oftentimes we they were in the lightest box possible. The fact is that a lot of times Georgia against run, you know, against in on plays where they thought Tennessee was going to run Georgia still only had five in the box and they limited Tennessee to 3.4 yards per carry. I mean, they didn't have an absolutely dominant running uh, day defending the rush, but Doing that, limiting them, making them basically convert second downs into makeable third downs, third downs into first downs, really hampered this Tennessee offense. I think it was clear from the get-go that this is not an offense on Tennessee's part that was designed to just matriculate its way down the field, right? And and Georgia very clearly was committed to forcing them to do that. And I think really the secret to them doing that wasn't even the pass defense. It was the fact that Tennessee could not get chunk plays running the ball against light boxes, which was that's that's part of the design of the offense is that you put guys way out in the boonies in the second seat, you know, the second row of the stands on your wide receivers out there. And then that makes it harder to defend the run. And then you run it up the middle and you get six or seven yards on first down. Well, when the whole offense changes, when you get two or three yards on first down or even four yards on first down and you constantly have to convert thirds downs on the day, I believe Tennessee was two for 13 on thirds downs. Which is, is, mm-hmm. is, I think, not just a testament to how well Georgia's defense played, but to the fact that Georgia's defense was able to do what everyone else had not, which was to keep light boxes and just like disassemble this, this Tennessee offense at the very sort of fundamental core of what they wanted to do. I also think Javad Bullard, Truly. obviously with the sacks, looked really good. Malachi Starks looked really good. Uh, they were very highly ranked. They were the highest ranking PFF uh, players on uh, defensive backs. Um you have a note here about worrying about Nolan Smith, but you're right. Those dudes showed up. Yeah, I was worried about Nolan Smith, like the the impact of him not being there. But yeah, everybody really seemed to step up and fill in. And yeah, I think that they just did incredibly. I think it's it's worth also saying that Lad McConkey, like have yourself a day. He's back. Yeah, Lad's he's back, back, baby. Lad, Lad got his his old that old McConkey confidence back in him. He had a great day. <laughs> I think he was close to 100 yards on the day. Uh, Darnell Washington didn't have a catch, but I, I'm sure that everyone at this point, and if you haven't, you should look it up. There's a gif of him on Twitter, just like one arm throwing a guy to the ground in a pass set. Mm-hmm. He looked really good blocking the whole day. I thought that Brock Bowers, who had a few pat, who had a few catches, actually was the the worst of the two of them as a blocker, which makes sense because of their relative mm-hmm. size. I don't know, man. I mean, honestly, the only negative thing that I can really think of coming out of the day is the injury to Robert Beal. Uh, Chaz Chambliss had to yeah. play a lot, and he looked okay at times. He looked he looks like he's getting better, but he had a pretty bad pass interference penalty when he ended up on a wide receiver and just got absolutely juked out of his shoes. So I, I, I don't know. Are there any other observations, thoughts about this before we go on and review our rankings and check in on some statistical updates and look around the league? Uh, I think I'll, I'll echo and say that I am continu- I continue to be worried about injuries. That was the the thing that I, if you spoke to me before the Tennessee game at all, you heard me saying that the thing I was most worried about was 
how will these big injuries affect us and which ones will we get from this game? And we came away with some pretty significant injuries that I am still, I will continue to worry about. And so I hope that, you know, all the other guys on this team, they continue to step up and do what they need to do to, to kind of continue this progression. But hopefully the next few games can be kind of chiller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so. we'll, we'll be able to actually, you know, heal ourselves a bit before we have to see whoever we see in the SEC championship. You know, Mississippi State, Kentucky on the road. We can talk about them as we come, as they come. But mm-hmm. you would say those are two traditional trap games. Those are games where you look for the letdown effect. The The point remains that I'm sure that Sam is going to predict these teams to be pretty, pretty heavily underdogs against uga i mean i think today the biggest line yeah. for mississippi state is uga minus 16 even on the road so like you said wow. you just got to take care of business so let's review our predictions yeah. neither of us were close yeah. you came away with this one no we I, weren't I, close at all yeah i was closer than you i said 38 28 you said 41 31 uh obviously mm-hmm. we the 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 prowess of ut's offense on this night was we sorely overestimated it uh sam actually got much closer i believe the Implied Sam score was something like 34-26 or something. So Sam got a little bit closer. Yeah. Uh, the Vegas line was not as close. We, we covered the Vegas line by quite a bit. I think it closed at 9 or 10, but we even covered that. In terms of statistical updates, we just hot off the presses got our CBCR2 power ranking updates. Georgia has now taken the number one spot powering Damn. past Ohio State. We are overall about a point better than Ohio State per CBCR2, then we, we're 39 points better overall than the average team. Ohio State is 38 points better. Then there's a seven-point drop, and Alabama is 31 points better. And then there's another five-point wow. drop, and we get Tennessee at fourth at 26.9. Tennessee actually didn't move that much. We thought that <laughs> CBCR2 and Sam both predicted this outcome, and we thought that we would win, and we did, right? So I don't think that mm-hmm. really the computer sees this as being like a negative for Tennessee so much as just a predicted outcome. Dude, that defensive drop, though, that's nuts. D- Georgia defensively is 5.2, and the next best is, what, 12.6 yeah, with Alabama? Alabama? Yeah, points. That, that's like points allowed against uh, an that's average team. Wild. Yeah, it, it is pretty wild. Uh, Low-key, Illinois, just excellent on defense. They have uh they have fourteen yeah. point They're only they're like in the Ohio State defensive range. They're actually better than Ohio State defensively mm-hmm. per um per CBCR two. I think the second ranked actually might be Iowa at eleven point nine, who are not good okay. uh, when it comes to offense. No. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> they are not good. Yeah. So man, what a what a time to be alive though. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think I don't know how to say this. Last year's team was obviously generationally good on defense, right? And Mm-hmm. And that is a team that everyone who is a Georgia fan from now until the end of the Georgia program or till kingdom come will remember that team fondly. I know I do personally, but I think the biggest difference between 2021 and 2022 so far is that there is a psychological difference to having proven you can do it. And I thought that that mm-hmm. would just be something that affected the fans, but it's becoming clear to me that like, that actually infects the team as well. And I think that there's yeah. some ways that that could be negative where it could lead to complacency, right? But it's pretty clear that at this point, that hasn't been the case with Kirby and these boys, uh, these these men, rather. Because this is a team that just seems unfazed, right? Biggest game of the season, no problem. Mm-hmm. Number one offense of all time, supposedly, 
The next coming of 2019 LSU, no problem, right? This is a team that just absolutely does not give a shit who you are. And I think part of that is good coaching. Part of that is having so many five stars. But part of that is also just this is a team that has seen everything led by a quarterback who has seen everything. Say what you want about Stetson, which you're not going to hear much criticism of Stetson around these parts anymore. But say what you want about him, but you cannot com- you cannot complain that he lacks experience. He's seen the biggest yep. stages. He's seen just about everything that this this sport can throw at him, and he just absolutely seems unfazed. Right outside of Georgia, do you have you have some notes about what's happening around the league, dude? What an absolute banner day for chaos. Ugh, just mm. if <laughs> if this is a podcast that's run on chaos, our our tank is full for quite some time. Yes, I think that I read that nine teams were upset this weekend and it wasn't just like a little bit of upset it wasn't like a number one versus number three team upset it was like unranked notre dame beating clemson upsets it was lsu who has no business beating alabama upsets like all of these big upsets over the weekend that i just absolutely enjoyed um some of the notable ones kansas blew out oklahoma state and became bowl eligible for the first time in many years so you know the, the little team that could these kansas jayhawks they're going to a bowl this year and I'm very excited for them. That is a Cinderella story I can get behind. The Bama and LSU game, it's just so strange. It was strange. I was kind of watching the whole time going, Bama, baby, what are you doing? Baby, mm-hmm. what is you doing? <laughs> I, I mean, they just don't not have... Not figuring it out. They don't have offensive weapons at this point. Not no. the way they have. And they do, but I feel like it's a coaching thing. And well, that was my original theory. But and that was before when Bryce Young was out thinking that, you know, mm-hmm. they, they just weren't playing the same way when he was in. And to me, that says if Bryce Young is cleaning up when this team can't do it, that's a coaching issue. Yeah. Bryce Young is the piece that need, that you need. But Bryce Young was here for this whole game and they just still couldn't get it done. And so I it might still be a coaching thing, but you're right. Like it's just not clicking by any means. But that loss to LSU means they have been knocked out of the SEC championship and most likely college football playoff contention, which great, fantastic. <laughs> I love it, uh, which yeah. I will say segues into another realization we had in our prep for this episode is that we could very well have a college football playoff built of teams whose last loss came from Georgia yeah. and Georgia. <laughs> yep. Oregon. If, if and that is a reality break, I want to live. You could have Oregon, Tennessee, Michigan, UGA, which would be UGA and three other teams that last lost to UGA. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Just what a beautiful story. I want to see that headline is what I want to see. But then uh, other things going on. Clemson losing to an unranked Notre Dame. Just yes. Marcus Freeman now has m- as many top five wins in his first season as Brian Kelly did in all 12 seasons at Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And a, and way, a oh, way better fade game than Brian Kelly did. A way better fade. Way better just aesthetically pleasing in general. There were many other upsets, uh, but these are the ones that most pleased me. But these ones the are mine. Gods. Yeah. Absolutely. These ones are mine. <laughs> there are many, but these ones are mine. What about you? Did you have anything else you wanted to sort of talk about through this weekend? Oh, the Ohio State or Northwestern. Not yeah. an upset, but it still sure felt like one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just Ohio State just kind of playing with its food. It is interesting in terms of if you look at, I think most statistical models are like this now. There is sort of a class one, which is usually, you know, Alabama and then whoever else. But this year, chat class mm-hmm. one is like Georgia, Ohio State gap, and then whoever else you think is better, right? Somewhere mm-hmm. in the vicinity of Tennessee, Michigan, Alabama. For us, it's in order Alabama, Tennessee, Michigan, 
Kansas State, Texas, LSU. Keep in mind, these rankings don't care about wins and losses. These are just our, our, our CBCR2 doesn't. It's just statistical performance. This is a an interesting year because there have been many years over the past run of Alabama dominance where there's sort of two teams and then the rest of the pack. And then you send you know, mm-hmm. teams three and four go to the college football playoff and get absolutely vaporized, which is what happened last year. But this is the first year that I can remember where one of those two teams is not Georgia or, or is not Alabama or Clemson. And yeah, I get it. Like yeah. Georgia and Ohio State aren't necessarily like traditional also hands or whatever. They're not little brother in any way. They're the the biggest brand arguably in sports is Ohio State, which like uh, I'm you can't see, but I just made the jerk off version <laughs> on that. But yeah. uh, so there's, this isn't like sisters of the poor, but this is an interesting year because it's just like like you said, Alabama probably has like a one and a half percent chance of going to the college football playoff, right? We might mm-hmm. see Ole Miss in the SEC championship. It's probably less likely than LSU, but that's great. Like I, I love seeing these new names up there. These teams that are good, like Michigan. You know, I don't think they're as good as Alabama, but they certainly have looked, or as Ohio State, but they certainly could look good. And I think they have a chance to give Ohio State a game again, right? Um, there are some teams like Texas isn't back, but they're fine, right? LSU is good. They had sort of a, a pretty big beat down at Tennessee or with Tennessee uh, in a noon game a few weeks ago. And they lost a game that they probably shouldn't have to Florida State for the first game under Brian Kelly. And look, I don't like Brian Kelly like as a person, but he can coach. Right. And so it's just nice to see, even if, even if college football is still kind of a monolithic sport, where only like 20 teams have a chance to actually win or whatever. It is nice to see that the teams at the very top have kind of rotated a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also nice when my team is one of them. That's like taking a place. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That part is pretty cool. So do you want me to get us out of here? Let's get us out of here. Let's do it. This has been Chapel Bell Curve. You can find us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or I don't know. We have a TikTok account, but I don't use it that much. And then, I mean, maybe we'll get on Mastodon at some point or something. I don't know. But you can find us everywhere that we exist at Chapel Bell Curve. You can get in touch with us at any of those places on our DMs, or you can hit us up at chapelbellcurve at gmail.com with your questions, rants, complaints, or manifestos about whatever weird topic you feel like we might read. If you would like to support this podcast, <laughs> you can find us at patreon.com forward slash Chapel Bell Curve, where for as little as $1 a month, you can join our... I will just say it superlative best community in the nation, best community oh. in dog nation, best Georgia sports podcast community and find some people who think about college football and life in general, the way that you do. I think if you would like to support us in a non-monetary way, that's fine. Capitalism is sucks. Sometimes that's you can <laughs> leave us a rating or review on Apple podcasts or Spotify or anywhere that you get your podcast. Hell, I don't care if you carve it into a wall somewhere. I mean, I'm not asking you to graffiti a public building with our Twitter tag, but like, and I'm not going to be legally responsible for it if you do, but also like, I won't be super upset. (laughs) So we will catch you this weekend in Stark Vegas. Well, I won't, but I'll be there in spirit or the classic city. But until then, yeah, go go dogs. dogs.